Hey folks, it's Jared. Dr. Ed Salo is taking his first turn in the hosting chair today, and since we've just celebrated the anniversary of the Battle of Midway, he has the authors of The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific and Midway on board. We are still looking for additional audio editors. We're happy to provide you some very basic training materials and instruction in a low-stress environment, so if you're interested in finding a way to contribute to SimSec and add to your resume and personal skill set, please send us an email with your resume to ccontrol at simsec.org. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Welcome, everyone, to Sea Control. My name is Ed Saylor, and I'm going to be moderating today's podcast. We're excited today to talk to the authors of a new book on the Battle of Midway, The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway. And we have with us uh, Brendan Simmons and Stephen McGregor, the authors of the book. Uh, Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. So um, I first wanted to, you know, ask you guys, tell us a little about yourselves and uh, your paths to being a historian. You, why don't you go first, Brennan? Well, I'm, I'm the, the older uh, of the two of us, which has no merit except that of seniority. So, so I'll start. Um, so I, I really became an historian um, when I discovered uh, about halfway through my uh, undergraduate career as a reading studying history at Trinity College Dublin, that I was just fascinated by historical causation, that I liked working with uh, primary documents, original documents, which I was able to do for my undergraduate dissertation. Um, And if you add to that the fact that my grandfather uh, was also an historian as a second degree, um, you might almost say that it's, it's in the blood. And uh, I guess for myself, I started off studying literature, uh, English literature, and at the Air Force Academy. And when I finished that, um, I was in the military for a bit. And uh, after after that, uh, when I went back to university, uh, I studied history at Cambridge. And uh, and Brendan was my supervisor for that. I did a um, uh, research into American foreign policy during the Civil War. And uh, yeah, that was that was how that was how it all began um, with history. I mean, you know, you read one book and then you you can't stop. You got to read another. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, well, next, I was going to kind of get into how you two of you met, which you brought up that you had worked together. Uh, how did you decide to work together? Because you know, a lot of times people think of historians, and you know, history is you know we work alone. But here's a book with two co-authors. Well, I, I have a, a history of co-authoring. So I co-authored two books with Charlie Lederman, uh, and the last of which uh, on 1941, which was called Hitler's American Gamble, uh, was quite was pretty successful. So I'm, I'm used to working uh, with a co-author. Uh, it's, people used to warn me uh, that this was something that was not entirely straightforward. Uh, but my experiences, both with Charlie Lederman and now with Steve uh, McGregor here, have been completely positive. And the reason why I was keen on doing this book together uh, was because I knew Steve, obviously, as a, as a fine historian, um, but also because I thought he brought two really critical um, 
dimensions to this book. Uh, I mean, this book is not just about war. Uh, it's about, um, about the nature of America, if you like. It's what, what Steve calls a, a piece of Americana. Um, and so having somebody who had actually fought in a war, uh, which Steve has and I luckily have not, uh, was important to the project, um, understanding the, the nature of, of combat and the, the emotions and the psychology. And secondly, having somebody who was American, understood uh, the United States, um, uh, who could relate to, to, to the, the, this uh, story of Americana around the book uh, was important. But, but I don't know how Steve felt about it. It was, it was great. I mean, I, I think, um, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think we both sort of saw different things in the story as well. And when we went through the, the materials, we were able to get into the, the, the personal papers of Edward Heineman, the designer of the, the Douglas Dauntless, uh, which was so critical to the battle. And, and historians have, some historians have known uh, that, that the Dauntless was important, but no one had looked at Heinemann's own work um, until we had the chance um, in connection with the Battle of Midway. So it was great to be able to go in and see and see his see his uh, his letters, his correspondence, and um, and Brendan and I both sort of different things in the correspondence kind of attracted us, and and so it was good that we had kind of both perspectives um, to to look through his work. So that takes me to the question: Why, why Midway? I mean, did anyone tell you um, you know that subject's already been mined out? There's mm-hmm. so many books about it. Why? And I also liked how at the beginning. Um, you brought in the movies, which last night I have to admit, I started watching the 1970s Midway yeah. again, just to prepare myself for this. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously Midway has been much discussed and there've been uh, a number of really good books on the topic, um, particularly Greg's, Craig Simon's book on Midway. Uh, there's been also a very good book by uh, Partial and Tully on the Japanese side of the battle. So there's no shortage of, of even quite recent work uh, on Midway. But we felt that uh, there were really three unique angles uh, that we brought to this. Um, one was a, uh, a wide angle approach at the beginning. So as, as Steve says, uh, we begin our story with um, Ed Heinemann, the designer of the battle winning platform, the, the uh, Douglas Dauntless. Um, and this is a story around innovation. Uh, around 1920s California, the, the sort of mix of factors that make for uh, that really kind of dynamic aviation industry. Um, and so the first three chapters are insertions really into the, into the nature of American history, what leads to uh, this culmination. Then we have, we narrow uh, our vision very substantially and we provide the, the most granular account of the, those epic five minutes uh, during which the dive bombers attacked. Uh, and then we broaden it out again uh, in the chapter you referred to earlier, Ed, which is the uh, legacy chapter. And we look at what all this mean, meant in the, uh, after the Second World War, but also what it means for today. Um, and I think these uh, approaches uh, are what makes our Midway book uh, different uh, from, uh, from these other ones. Not better, but, but it's simply a different take. Yes, uh, the concept of innovation, I thought was really, um, you know, being in the first part of the book, uh, really grabbed me. Um, you know, how, how do you see innovation helping to win not only the battle, but the war? 
Well, I, what's interesting about this is I think we tend to think of innovation in the Second World War as something that produces uh, revolutionary new technology, like more advanced technology. You know, we think of something like the atomic bomb. Um, it's 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 almost a kind of it, it's a it's a it's a change in 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 the era um, of technology and in history. But what's interesting about the innovation that's that's so important to the American victory in the Battle of Midway is that it's it's actually conventional technology. Um, so Heinemann um, Heinemann designs the the Dauntless, but what he does is he designs an incredibly rugged plane. It's not necessarily there, there are some aspects of it which are completely new, which other aircraft don't have, like like the dive brakes. But what what it its main kind of strength is that it's a very durable plane. It's a heavy plane. In some ways you could say it's over-designed, but it's a simplistic plane, um, which is able to uh, operate at sea in very uh, difficult co uh, conditions. And so his innovation in that sense is that he, he's able to um, take all the existing, you know, he, he didn't, the other, the, the Japanese dive bomber, the HE D3A1, that was a very good plane. Uh, the Germans had developed a good dive bomber, the Stuka. But what's interesting is that Heinemann's plane, it could fly further. Uh, it, was, it was more rugged. It was heavier, so it could survive um, enemy fire um, much longer. Um, so he innovated in ways that um, they weren't... He was using conventional technology um, to be an innovator, and that was really what allowed um, America to win the battle. And that's something that, you know, that this aspect of the battle, the way that we... Uh, that we uh, are able to tell the story that is very that is very unique when you think about the battle of midway okay um give you a couple minutes um you know a lot of times when people start discussing battle of midway the idea of luck comes in and um, i saw luck pop up a few times in uh the book give you a couple minutes to discuss the idea of luck and maybe what how much it was played out discussing the battle well, this is a very common theme in histories of Midway. Um, so the, the, uh, uh, really the earliest um, serious account uh, by Walter Lord uh, called Incredible Victory um, refers to, he actually uses the phrase, no right to win. You know, he, he, he describes the battle as uh, really a concatenation of, of uh, fortunate circumstances, ultimately, which enabled uh, the American victory. Um, so there's this idea that it's basically a fluke. Uh, it's lucky. Um, then you've got Gordon Prang's um, miracle at, at Midway, which comes out in the early uh, 1980s, but actually written much earlier in the 70s. Um, and again, there you have the sense of, of Midway as a deliverance. It's something almost, you know, that comes out of the skies. And what we're trying to argue is not that these books are, are bad books. In fact, they still repay uh, reading today. Um, but we're pushing back against this idea that it's uh, it's luck. What we're arguing is that it's good training, uh, good preparation. As Dusty Kleiss uh, says, um, who was one of the top uh, dauntless pilots, and he's one of the main uh, foci of our of our book, says that you know they they were just that little bit better uh, than the Japanese, and that's what made all the difference on the day. So it's a story, our story. Is a story about training, preparation, and skill, uh, and not a story about about luck. Yeah, and I think um, uh, that's all very true. And I and I think 
you know, when you think about luck and war, I mean, I'd be curious Ed, do, if, if it comes up when you teach, um, when you teach your military history class, um, fortune has always been understood, you know, going back to the ancients, uh, fortune has been understood as, uh, you know, as significant in war. I mean, I think of, there's a great uh, moment in Roosevelt's Rough Riders where he talks about sitting around the fire and looking at the other men um, in, in the Rough Riders and how um, in just a matter of hours, uh, some of them will be dead. And it's, and it's, it's sort of, up to, it's sort of in fortune's hands, which ones, uh, die and which ones do not. And there is kind of that sense, you do get that sense in war. And I think it's certainly in the Battle of Midway, there were things that, that happened where you think it's, it's, it's hard to say really why, um, why it went one way and why it went another. Um, but what we discover is that, and what we argue in the book is that when, when you think about the, uh, the overall outcome and when you think about the things that were in the control of key players like the American dive bomber pilots, the, the way that they conducted their dive, the, 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 the place where they put their, their ordinance that was in their control and they did perform well, they performed as they trained. So in that sense, um, while fortune always, you know, there's always gonna be something that fortune um, is, in, is a way that fortune's involved. There's, there's it, it, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't train, that you shouldn't prepare because you see in the Battle of Midway, you see where it makes a difference. And yeah, and that brings up to one next thing I had kind of written down to discuss is you say in the book, you know, you discuss superior training technologies, professionals, not amateurs won the day. Um, would you like to elaborate on any on that? Because I thought that was a really important. And, you know, we think of, well, I guess not just pilots, but, you know, kind of think of naval personnel as more professionals uh, just because you know, they're having to deal with really complex machinery and navigation and everything. So I, I think what we were trying to um, uh, get out here was that we, we tend to think of the Second World War as a war which is, you know, fought badly by professional militaries um, during its opening stages and where then uh, civilian um, genius and mass mobilization wins the day. And there's a lot to be said for that approach for, for many other uh, theatres of the war. I mean, certainly would be true of the British war effort uh, in many ways, um, although the British army was not as bad between 1939-1942 has been made out, and it wasn't as great as, as people make out after 1942. Uh, nevertheless, it, it's true that, um, uh, that civilian uh, mobilisation, mass mobilisation and, and um, uh, technological innovation during the war was important. What we were showing was that Midway is different because Midway is actually fought by the, basically by the peacetime U.S. Navy. It's using equipment that, as Steve said, was designed uh, long before the war, like the Dauntless. Uh, pilots, all of whom had uh, uh, gained their wings before Pearl Harbor, uh, and ships, um, aircraft carriers, all of which had been commissioned long before the outbreak of war. Um, so really, it's a victory for the peacetime Navy. And, and the point we're trying to make is that you really then need to have uh, good preparation uh, for war. You can't expect to, uh, to make up what you haven't done um, after the start of hostilities. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And um, I hadn't really thought about that, that, yeah, this was 
the peacetime Navy. This was the, you know, they hadn't had the time to do the huge buildup that you think of with the army um, that, you know, I had written in my notes here talking about like Stephen Ambrose celebrating the amateur nature of the U S army, how it was more citizen soldiers who defeated the professional German army. But yeah, you bring an excellent point up. Um, And that does bring us up to one part, um, the intelligence. As I was saying, I was watching the 1970s uh, Midway movie last night and, you know, the whole um, focus on how intelligence helped to win the battle. Um, You know, how important do you think the intelligence coups were to winning the battle? Well, I think intelligence undoubtedly played an important role. Um, Going back to the 1920s, the U.S. had managed to crack uh, the Japanese uh, military codes, um, and that that definitely provided a good advantage to uh, to the U.S. Uh, the U.S. had had um, they had an advantage in that regard, uh, but that's not our story. Um, you know, we're telling a story. It's much more um, not to take away from from the importance of intelligence, but we don't want that import the Im- intelligence and the focus on intelligence to overshadow other factors which have have yet to to uh, receive their due. Um, like the preparation of the pilots, like the skill they implemented on the day, like the importance of the of the Dauntless as the war-winning machine, and like the strategic acumen of uh, Admiral Nimitz. Your narrative is laced with oral histories, memoirs, first-hand accounts, which uh, I found to be very interesting because you decide to focus a lot on the common man and the common man on both sides. Um, what? Why was this the way you decided to uh, craft the narrative? Well, we we thought that this was a a very good way in to the story that the reader would need to identify with a key figure at a at a relatively early stage of our account, um, and so we introduce in the third chapter uh, the character of Dusty Kleist, who's who's well known uh, to aficionados of the Battle of Midway as as a uh, extremely skillful, uh, dauntless pilot, but he also has what's very important is uh, a backstory. Um, and the two backstories which uh, we uh, stress particularly uh, in the lead up to the battle. One is the fact that he's a German American, uh, so he comes out of that uh, sort of originally immigrant milieu, and that's a big part of our our book is the importance of of immigration to, to American greatness, uh, but also his motives were called into, into question. He was actually uh, uh, interrogated by uh, U.S. Navy intelligence um, after Pearl Harbor on account of his German name and background. Um, so it's an interesting counterfactual, you know, had he been taken out of the front line and people like him, uh, what that would have done to the, um, uh, to the U.S. Navy and other formations. But the other dimension uh, to Kleiss, which we found fascinating, was you know, that he was in love. Um, he was engaged uh, to a woman, Jean Eunice uh, Marchand, and he, he corresponds with her. And he talks about his fears. He talks about the way in which he's fighting this war to protect her from the world outside. Um, and then we, we describe the way in which that hostile outside world then encroaches upon him. Uh, so I think for me, he was the the key figure, but uh, Steve, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, Ed, you, it's a great question because um, there was, I mean, when you, re- yeah, when you, when you go into the material, you know, the material we have, we're very fortunate in that a lot of uh, veterans of the battle 
they did interviews or they wrote books or articles. And when you go through this stuff, it's, it is, it is clear. I mean, these guys and by and large, are just ordinary guys. And it was certainly, if you think about our three main characters, Ed Heineman, born in Saginaw, Michigan, um, Chester Nimitz, he's born in Fredericksburg, Texas, and Dusty Kleiss in Coffeyville, Kansas. These guys are just from small towns and they're not from, I mean, Kleiss and Nimitz end up going to the Naval Academy, but they do so, um, you know, their parents didn't go to university. They, they wanted to um, apply themselves. They got the, they, you know, they got the itch in their late teen, teenage years. They thought, oh, I want to see the world. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I want to try and get into Annapolis and that, and, and they did, and they managed it, you know, cause they had teachers, uh, it's really interesting when you think about it. They were able to pass their entrance exams and be competitive for Annapolis because they had teachers in their small towns who spent time with them, um, you know, and and it, it helped them with their extra homework. You know, I mean, it's really it is. It's a story about ordinary people. And I guess it kind of goes back to your one of your earlier questions about why another book on Midway. And that's because, you know, in some respects, we we're forgetting the Pacific War. We're forgetting all of the. Uh, the sacrifices that were made there and the hard work that went into winning that war. Well, this is a great book to read, to get to know exactly what took place, to have a way into the, to the war. I mean, it's, it was an enormous conflict. Uh, Francis Pike talks about how it was, it took place over an area that was three times the size of the European theater. So it's enormous, enormous theater of, of, of battle in the Pacific. So you need some way in to start to learn about it. And I think this book and, and the battle of Midway and how America won that war is a great way to do that. So that's what, that's what I would say. I mean, I think the ordinary man is, I think you're, you're exactly right. It's so important. So I guess, and you may have kind of answered this, uh, was there one person you found you really liked to write about? Doesn't have to be the person that you most like, but someone that you just found as a writer, hey, it was fun to write about him or it was easy to write about the person? What do you reckon, Brendan? Well, I think we've already mentioned a number of, of characters. Um, I mean, on the Japanese, so I won't repeat them. On the Japanese side, we have the, um, uh, a, a torpedo and bomber pilot. So he, he, he uh, flew, uh, used torpedoes against ships and then bombs for, for ground missions attacking Midway, who was called Juzo Mori. Um, and we found him an attractive character because uh, he, he was somebody who talked about his feelings. He was rather salty language. Um, and then after the the war, um, he um, you know he goes off and he runs a bar. Um, and so you get we try to give a sense in the uh, in the subsequent chapter in the legacy chapter uh, just how diverse the subsequent careers of of some of the protagonists are. I mean, one of them got religion and in a big way. I don't know if Steve wants to speak to that, but he's, he's our religion expert. <laughs> yeah, that's Pashida. It is very interesting. I mean, yeah, religion does play a role in the book. Um, it's definitely something that uh, it, it just comes up in, in unexpected ways. So that it becomes an issue between Kleiss and his, his girlfriend. They, they, they have different beliefs about God. And so this, this um, is like something that, that almost ends their relationship. And um yeah, so it does. Religion, religion makes a difference. I, I guess in terms of character, characters I enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed um, Cleo Dobson. He was a landing signal officer. He's a, he was a dauntless pilot on the Enterprise, and um, he he wrote this diary that was transcribed by uh, some members of his family who who um, uh, they self published his his diary on Amazon. You can get it. It's 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 amazing to read. Um, 
And what I liked about it is he, you know, so you're getting with him, you're getting a source that he's writing at the time. So he's writing it as events are unfolding. And I feel like with that, you're getting it. You, it's just, you, you always have to wonder when you're reading someone's account, to what extent it's being filtered through the passage of time and the way they see things in retrospect. And, you know, that's something that we consider more in more detail at the end of the book when we think about the legacy of the battle. But Dobson's memoir or his, his journal that he, that was published by his family, that was, I really enjoyed um, getting to know him and, and some of the things that he said and being able to put that into the book because, um, you know, you were seeing, you know, so he says the battle is a turning point. He says that in June. He says that pretty much on the day of the battle, he recognizes this. And it was incredible to read, you know, to read that and to read how he was, what he thought about Carrier, um, uh, about naval warfare and, uh, you know, and, and just, it's just, it's really something. It was, I think I enjoyed, I enjoyed his work. And um, you're saying the legacy of the battle um, brings me to, you know, Midway's almost got a mythical place in American World War II history. You know, I would say, you know, most people know Normandy and, you know, Pearl Harbor, the atomic bombings, and they know Midway. Uh, why do you think that it has such a myth, mythical place in American history? Well, you're absolutely right that it has that place. And we know that uh, not least because, you know, there are two very big uh, major scale movies. Uh, the one with Charlton Heston in 1976 and then uh, a one uh, by, uh, directed by Roland Emmerich uh, in 2019. Um, and they're both actually rather good movies. I mean, the 1976 one is historically uh, inaccurate uh, in important respects, um, but it's artistically, I think, very good. Um, and the Roland Emmerich movie is, is historically, you know, pretty much 100% accurate with a couple very small dramatic licenses taken. So that, that's a real achievement. And he, he went to a lot of trouble to consult experts uh, on the battle. But I think the the reason why why Americans remember this battle is probably, we would say, for the wrong reason. I think it's because we have, uh, they have in their heads the idea that this was a battle that was decided, uh, you know, by chance, um, that it was decided because, uh, you know, Nagumo was about to launch his strike and was then preempted uh, by the Americans. And we, we know that's not the case. He wasn't anywhere ready to launch. Um, and so what we think is the main uh, the main truth about battle, which is the role of, you know, just preparation, training, skill, uh, and endurance, um, that tends to be to be rather lost. But Steve, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, um, I suppose that uh, in some respects, you know, so the Navy remembers this; uh, it remembers the battle, it commemorates the battle every year. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think. Um, there is a waning, there's, yeah, there's a, fa- there's just our knowledge on the Pacific War has faded. Um, and the extent to which we know about Midway, I, I think what Brendan said, there is this aspect in which we think of it as, uh, as the result of divine intervention or chance or, um, yeah, which, you know, which however much those mm. things played a role, mm. it's, um, it, you know, it's important to know about mm. the other issues. Mm. But the good the good reason to, to remember it is, of course, the fact that it marks the point when basically the heart is torn out of the Japanese naval aviation striking force. So they lose four of their six uh, main fleet carriers of the Kido Butai of the mobile force. 
uh, and essentially um, they're unable then to, to launch further attacks uh, in the direction of Hawaii. Um, and the offensive which they do launch to the south towards Guadalcanal is greatly weakened. So the counterfactual you'd have to run is what if the Japanese had won at the Battle of Midway, then most likely they would also have prevailed at Guadalcanal. The outcome of the war, we argue in the book, would still have been the same because ultimately uh, US uh, industrial might would have told, but it would have been a very different war. It would have been a war where uh, the United States would be on the defensive in the Pacific for a much longer period. It would have made it difficult to pursue the Germany first strategy, which, of course, Roosevelt and Churchill had agreed. So I think those are the good reasons why people will remember um, Midway's as a turning point. Um, but we think they should also remember it uh, as a triumph for the peacetime Navy uh, and for the, Ger- or for the American society, which produced that weapon. I really like the legacy chapter and, you know, you were bringing up that people, Americans are forgetting the lessons of the Pacific war, but you're bringing up in the legacy chapter that the Chinese Navy is studying the lessons of Midway. And um, what do you think some of the lessons for the U S Navy are today? Well, one lesson, I I mean, I think you're right. I think, I think it's important. It's important um, today. Uh, One, one, one lesson, there's a few, I mean, but one is that uh, the the Navy that you bring to war is the Navy that you have in peacetime, you know, it sort of touches on what we've, we've been discussing. It's like you go to war, you know, war takes place in the, in, in, in our world. It doesn't, doesn't take place in a different world. So the, the, the soldiers, the sailors, uh, the airmen, all the people, the Marines, the people who participate in war, um, they are, they come, they come from uh, the rest of society and, uh, I, I think there's a lot of ways that's important, but one is just that th- that's all the more reason for us to train to 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 uh, to prepare now. Um, so there is there's like there's a lesson of preparation um, in there. What do you, Brandon? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with that, um, and I think also that uh, there's a danger of complacency. Uh, we have in our heads um, a notion that you know you have Pearl Harbor, uh, and that is then followed by by reversal like Midway. Um, And the point we make in the book is, yes, uh, we could quite easily um, suffer another Pearl Harbor, a surprise attack and and a serious defeat, whichever way you look at it. Uh, But there's no guarantee that we will be gifted another Midway. Um, A Midway uh, is not a deliverance. It's not a fluke. Um, A Midway has to be earned uh, and fought for. And as Steve says, I mean, the time to start preparing for that is, is, is actually now or better still yesterday. I think too, the other, the other aspect of the battle, which still has relevance is just the, you know, that's the geography. It's where it takes place uh, because the Pacific is the theater where uh, Midway occurs in the second world war. And the Pacific is once again, where uh, we're seeing uh, rivalry between great powers. So if you want to understand how to engage, how to, how to fight war in the Pacific, what better than to read a book which examines exactly how that took place uh, in the 1940s. So is there anything else you two would like to discuss about the book in our last little bit? What do you reckon, Brendan? I mean, there's a lot. We, we yeah. Hit- yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to do too much because we want people to go out and buy the yeah. book. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think that was quite a good conclusion. Um, so I don't, I don't really have anything to add, actually. 
So the book, The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway, is available in all major bookstores and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere, correct? Yes. Right. And um, I have to admit, I do have right here on my desk, Hitler's American Gamble to read next. <laughs> so um, that's what I'm going to be hitting next. So what are you two going to be working on next? And how can people follow you? You know, social media, that kind of thing. Oh, good question. Um, you know, I'll be working on, uh, I have a book that I've done on foreign policy during the American Civil War. I'll be working on that. Um, you can follow me. Um, I'm not really on social media. I, 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 uh, I, yeah, I have social media. It's just a different thing. I, I mean, um, so yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I'm going to have a newsletter so you can sign up. You can sign up for my newsletter, on my website, uh, Stephen McGregor.com. And, uh, I'm not, I don't send out many things, but I will, I will send out, you know, things now and then on there. And so it'd be great to, uh, to hear from people who sign up and, um, yeah, we'll be in touch. So my next book is probably going to be on the great powers today, looking at which are the great powers uh, at the moment, um, why they are so, why certain powers are not great powers, what constitutes a great power. Uh, so that's the project. Um, I'm Like Steve, I'm not on social media, but I do run the Center for Geopolitics at Cambridge. So if you're interested to know what I'm doing and what the center is doing more generally, uh, do go online and look up Center for Geopolitics uh, at Cambridge, and you can register for our uh, our events. Um, and many of them are on Zoom, so I think people listening to the podcast will be able to tune into them, even if they can't come to the in-person events. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. 